In Session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. But if you do call in, I ask that all questions be directed towards my guest tonight, who I have the blessing of knowing quite well. My guest tonight is Parham Tolakwi, my brother. Um, I'm going to give you a little introduction of him I got to meet him today. It was very nice to, to get to know this fine gentleman. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest, Parham Holakwi, who is a principal and head of operations at Global Innovation Catalyst, LLC, where he advises governments on transitioning their economies away from fossil fuel dependence and towards innovation-focused economic growth. His work aims to develop innovation ecosystems that drive entrepreneurship and job creation. And if all of that sounded like a different language to you, like it did to me, don't worry, he'll explain a lot of what that all means. His educational background, he received his BA from UCLA, his MBA from UCLA Anderson, and his JD from Columbia Law School, and also has earned his master's degree from UC Berkeley, and will will be completing his PhD at the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business in 2017. And he previously worked as a corporate transactional attorney at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher LLP here in downtown Los Angeles. Parham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Fadid, for having me. Uh, It's great to be speaking with you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the air, but especially it's a pleasure not just because you're my brother, but because I am very excited about the work you have been doing, which is what you're here to talk about tonight. Um, And not only am I excited, but I've seen how excited you are, which is so nice to see because I know what you're doing is very much in line with so much of that you've studied, but also things that you're passionate about. And that's why I wanted to bring you on today or tonight to talk about what you are doing now to help advise some countries in the Middle East and Africa or North Africa. Um, Maybe you can tell us a bit about what the program is. I, I mentioned Global Innovation Catalyst, and I know you're working with Kamran Elahian, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you're doing there, and we'll get a little bit deeper about what the work is about. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, this is the most uh, passionate I've ever been about work that I'm doing. Um, I think it addresses a key uh, global problem that we have today and can be a mechanism to um, create a more uh, globally secure and safe world. Um, and it can also address the the problem of terrorism and extremism that exists. And to me, that is a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. The actual root of the problem is that we have um, a population in the Middle East and in North Africa that has the highest youth unemployment rates in the world. The average rate is at 30%, but it can exceed 40, 50, even 60% in some countries. We also have uh, interesting demography in these countries where we have over two-thirds of the population is under the age of 30. Mm. So you have this large population of youth who all are jobless and often hopeless, and have felt completely disillusioned by their governments. And this then leads them to fall into potentially the wrong hands. When you have a really Mm -hmm. large population of young people who have nothing to do, they end up often doing um, things that can lead to to negative outcomes, 
They can be drawn into things like violence, and it creates a more unstable and insecure world. So um, terrorist organizations often will target these jobless and hopeless youth and give them some glimmer of purpose. Uh, they will give them money, a job. For many of these young people, they are um, unable to even start a family. In more traditional countries, uh, if you don't have a job, it's, it's, you won't get married. And so this can delay adulthood. So these are young people that are just sitting around. These extremist organizations will come to them and say, not only do we give you purpose and a job, but we'll also give you a wife. Um, so this finally, for the first time, for many of these young people, someone is giving them a sense of purpose mm -hmm. and something to live for. Unfortunately, it leads to what has been happening, which is the rise in terrorism. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, you, meant, you said something to live for. And I think that's so important because even one of the most famous psychology books of all time, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, it's talking about finding your meaning. And if you really aren't given an opportunity to express yourself in positive ways, you're more likely going to be drawn towards negative things that can somehow give you a meaning or purpose. Um, it reminds me of, uh, you might know this fellow, Dr. Farhang Holak, who talks about fill your time with good things or so many good things that you don't have time for bad things. So if we don't fill up our times with productive, positive things, we're more likely to get pulled in negative directions as well. What I also thought just interesting hearing you talk and maybe for someone listening there, you know, here we're talking about economics and creating jobs and all these kinds of things. And it sounds very focused on one sphere, like economics and job creation. And then you say terrorism, and it might be surprising to some people. They wouldn't expect that that's where you're going with that. But I think that's what's so fascinating about the work you're doing. And also about all these complex um, issues we talk about in society. For example, the war on drugs, just going after drugs and drug users and people who are drug dealing doesn't solve the problem because it's such a complex issue. Similarly, the war on terrorism isn't going to work if we just go and focus on who are currently terrorists and try to take them down. It has to be much more of a grassroots approach or more of a systematic program that's going to change things. It's not just going to change by attacking the terrorists. What you're talking about and why I think the work you guys are, going to, are doing is so incredible is that it's trying to really change these countries in a way that makes it so that people have something good to do. So not only will we have less people going towards these terrorist organizations, we'll have people who are producing and contributing to society in a positive way, such an ultimate win-win situation. So I think the approach is so meaningful because it's deeper than a lot of the approaches we hear about to tackle issues like terrorism. You're touching on all the points um, and articulating it well, um, which is surprising because you as my brother, I, uh, it's, it's great to, uh, <laughs> you've always been extremely articulate, uh, but often when me and Fadi are just having conversations, uh, it's usually just us joking, laughing, talking about simple <laughs> things. This is a little bit more intense, mm -hmm. but it's good too. These are things that I, I think uh, are good to talk about as well. Um, but you, you, you um, mentioned a lot of really, I think, important points. Uh, exactly right. Um, the approach that's needed, um, and when we, when we see something that's creating violence, instability, insecurity, when we feel threatened, we want to fight back with more violence. Uh, here, the problem is really about the disillusionment, the hopelessness, the lack of purpose, and how do you address that? What we know is the most significant job creator that exists is entrepreneurship, new business growth. And that's completely lacking in these countries, unfortunately. These are very resource-dependent countries. Often it's oil and gas-dependent countries 
that rely on resources which are low-value added goods and create very few jobs. Mm -hmm. As a result, these economies have not been able to utilize this large youth population and integrate them into the workforce. So the best way to address this is to create an ecosystem that provides uh, a context within which entrepreneurship can thrive, new business growth, growth can thrive. And we know how to do this. It's been very successful in the United States, creating uh, innovation ecosystems where new ideas are able to emerge. There are entrepreneurs everywhere. It's universal. What is not everywhere is the context within which entrepreneurship can thrive. Mm -hmm. And so if we can provide a, you know, uh, cultivate entrepreneurship by providing the ecosystem needed, and this includes things like the investors that you need at every phase, um, mentorship, accelerators and incubators that allow businesses that start at their inception to grow and to scale, um, a culture that embraces entrepreneurship as a viable career path, that embraces the idea that failure is okay, taking a risk, trying something, exploring and experimenting um, with a new business has a lot of positive spillovers to society and should be encouraged. In mm -hmm. many of these mm -hmm. countries, if you start a new business and it fails, you could end up in jail. Mm -hmm. And so... Because if you owe people money and you can't pay it, is that essentially why? The or? bankruptcy laws are very underdeveloped mm -hmm. and they're not sophisticated enough to be able to uh, garner um, what is needed, the environment needed to to create entrepreneurs that are um, able to fail and start their businesses again. Failure in these, it's also, you know, not only do the laws reflect that, the culture reflects that. Mm -hmm. um, failure is shunned, it's seen as something that is, is frowned upon and so... It's very difficult to have, to be in a culture in which if you fail, not only are you potentially at legal risk, but your family is also going to be very disappointed in you and you feel, you, you feel like you're a failure. Mm -hmm. um, we live in an environment where in the United States, if someone starts, many of the most successful entrepreneurs have failed multiple times. Um, and in fact, so in, in, in reference to that, the person that I, um, you know, who to me is an incredible success story but has also had his share of downfalls and has shown so much resilience as Kamran Elahian, the person that I'm working uh, closely with now. Um, Kamran has started uh, 10 companies. Three of them did fail. But um, of the successes, uh, three were multi-billion dollar IPO exits. Uh, the others were other huge successes that he's, he's been able to have throughout um, his early career as an entrepreneur. And then he was a venture capitalist uh, with a global venture fund that invested in several countries. And then after that, he was a uh, philanthropist, mm -hmm. worked for the United Nations um, in, in helping you know, provide everything that he had learned and all of the wealth that he had, spreading that to the world to create positive changes. And he's been able to do amazing things on that, that front as well. Just one example of that is um, a project in which he uh, put school uh, computers in mm -hmm. schools all around the world. These are very poor countries in which um, they, they couldn't afford computers or anything even close to that. And this was at the inception of the early stages of the of computers and, and the internet um, in early 2000. Mm -hmm. And um, they were able to put school uh, computers in schools in um, over 50 countries. And so he's done a lot of positive things, created a lot of goodwill and made connections to a lot of world leaders, mm -hmm. and now is putting everything that he's done throughout his career to a positive use. So I'm I'm very privileged to be working with him. Yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, I mean, you've told me, I know him, um, and I also, but from you, have learned more about the work he's done, both professionally but also with the philanthropic work he has done. 
um, which is incredible. And I'm, that's, I think, opening a lot of doors for what you guys are going to be doing with these countries and advising them. But I think what you said was interesting because sometimes we think, well, what we're trying to do is create the opportunity for businesses to succeed, which is true. But a big part of that is allowing for businesses to be created that actually fail, to create the space for that is important. Without that, you can't really have the big successes. And if you live in a with an environment that is very f- afraid of failure, then and there isn't room for failure, well, then people aren't going to try things. It reminds even how with parenting, you know, you want to give your kids that feeling of safety and security that everything is going to be okay, they're going to be safe and fine, and you'll take care of them, and that allows them to explore. Only when they have that sense of security can they explore. And so we're trying to create that, or you guys are trying to help them create that type of a framework um, where they have the security and the stability to go out there and try these things, try ideas, because the only way you can find really good ideas is to actually allow a lot of not so good ideas to also be created and let the strongest ones emerge, essentially. You're exactly right. And what's interesting also is that often the ideas that end up succeeding don't seem like they're that innovative at its start. Mm -hmm. Ideas iterate and change and grow and develop and move in different directions always. The business that you think you're going to create today, uh, three months into your business, may be going in a completely different direction. It's almost impossible to predict exactly what your business will do. Some Mm -hmm. of the most successful businesses have pivoted away from what they're original business model was into something else. So what you need is experimentation, exactly what you were touching on. Mm -hmm. For true innovation to emerge, for truly transformative new ideas to, to be created, it's necessary to have that initial experimental phase where you create what we um, what entrepreneurs will call a minimum viable product to test the viability of your business early on, get feedback and, and see if it's something that can be done. And thankfully today, that initial phase of being able to see if you have a viable product can be done much less expensively than was possible just years ago. Mm-hmm. So today, an entrepreneur that wants to test out their idea can do so with much less money because of the internet, because of broadband, because of the resources that are available now. So the opportunity for entrepreneurs today, anywhere in the world, through their access to the internet, and if they're just provided with the minimal resources needed to create an innovation ecosystem, can do incredible things. Mm-hmm. That wasn't possible just a few years ago. So this is a good time to have this large youth population seeking an opportunity and not being dependent on the existing establishment, the older people, be it in the political powers, the economic powers, relying on them to open the doors for them. They can open the doors for themselves mm-hmm. by being entrepreneurs. We just need to empower them. Yeah, and I think that's what's so exciting about the work that you guys are doing is that, you know, it's like that old the adage, uh, if you teach a man to fish, feed him for a day. Or, or if you give him a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish... Depends on how big the fish yeah, is. I guess, yeah. apparently, it doesn't matter on the size of the fish. But if you give them... Uh, you teach them how to fish, they can feed themselves for the rest of their lives. And a lot of the aid that uh, United States has done and, and many organizations who are is wonderful, but it's a lot more giving the fish rather well, I'll, than I'll, I'll teaching th- them how to fish. Sure. And I just, as you mentioned that if you can teach them to create uh, a more poles. effective mechanism, a fishing right. pole or yeah. more effective to get more fish, then if, if you give them the possibility to innovate and create something, they can be much more effective. Even That's so. actually true. Taking that analogy a step further is that they know their environment better than you do. So That's if you actually also. give them the tools to then create the best fishing pole and whatnot. I don't want to go too I think far we should just analogy. keep using fishing analogies for the rest of the show. Param and I will talk about fishing for the rest of the hour. <laughs> Anyone wants to call in with a fishing question, you can call 310-441-0555. No, but if you do have a question for Param, please feel free to call. He's talking about his work with Global Innovation Catalyst, where they're doing advisory work with governments in the Middle East and North Africa. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. 
We'll be right back. Welcome back. My guest tonight, Parham Halakwi. We are talking about his work that he's doing along with Global Innovation Catalyst to advise governments in the Middle East and North Africa. So Parham, before the break, you talked a lot about what, what you guys are doing, um, but maybe you can talk about how, you know, you mentioned we want to improve or increase employment in these countries, but why entrepreneurship and innovation? Why is that the route that you guys feel is best suited to help these countries? So, uh, yeah, I think the most important uh, factor um, in deciding how to address this problem is to think, okay, how do we provide jobs and hope to the jobless and the hopeless? Mm-hmm. That's the, If that's the root of the problem. And uh, we know that even in the United States, the uh, net job growth over the last 30 years is almost entirely attributed to firms less than five years old. Mm-hmm. So it's new businesses entrepreneurship that actually drives the job growth in the United States. And that's the case, even more so the case for developing countries. Mm -hmm. So if if our concern is jobs for the youth, the best pathway to get that accomplished is through entrepreneurship. Mm. We also know how it is to create and cultivate an environment that's conducive to entrepreneurship. That's something that we we can create, we can help build. And that's really at the crux of what we try to do in our advisory work with the countries that we're working with and also with our more recent work now with the World Bank, to use their development funds. Um, they have an unprecedented amount, $57 billion for development over the next three years in Africa. Hmm. It's, the, it's a record-breaking amount for the World Bank. And we believe if we can just take a tiny, tiny percentage of that, we can create transformative change. If we take 1% of that amount and create what we uh, have identified as a fund of funds, and I don't want to get into the, the weeds of this, But essentially, we're filling in the gap that's always missing in innovation ecosystems, which is that initial funding that entrepreneurs need to test their businesses. Once they Mm -hmm. reach a certain scale, they have some revenue, they have some customers, that's when venture capital money often will come in and fund them to scale and grow their businesses further. Mm -hmm. But getting to that phase, you need, there's a couple interim phases that need to be funded. And those are very initially high risk investments. Mm -hmm. As you were mentioning, the failure rate is very high. And the uh, life cycle is very, very long. So you're making Mm. a small investment, hoping that something pans out over the course of maybe 10 to 15 years. Mm. Policymakers need to step in and provide that to complete the the ecosystem. This won't develop organically. Um, And so, and that's very interesting. And like I was, I know you, I'm glad you talked about that and maybe we can touch on it a little bit more, the whole ecosystem idea. Is some of it modeled at all over Silicon Valley and what's been happening there? Is that part of your guys' model or is it, totally separate. Silicon Valley, the the mindset, uh, the approach, what's worked, uh, certainly inspires what's done in each country. But if you try to replicate Silicon Valley in another country, it won't work. Mm-hmm. In fact, many would say if you tried to replicate Silicon Valley in Silicon Valley today, it mm-hmm. wouldn't work. <laughs> it has to be tailor-made to the environment as it exists. And so what we try to do is build on the existing strengths find where the gaps are, and um, make sure that it's um, reflective of what is needed in that particular society. And it will be different in one country versus another, in one city versus another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why our first, what we do before any action plan is created is an assessment phase, where we assess 
what's happening on the ground as closely as possible to get a complete and thorough understanding of, uh, and there's always some things that are going well. There's mm -hmm. always some successes. The other thing we always see is entrepreneurs. There are always ideas. It's just in many countries, the ideas emerge and then they die. Mm. They have nowhere to go. Um, that, that context, the resources needed to grow the idea don't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the general approach that yeah. we take. And, and of course, it's, um, it's something that um, can't be directly replicated, but without question, a lot of the lessons that have been learned in existing successful ecosystems is then being sure. relayed to other areas. Right. So, you know, it's taking the, the lessons, like you said, learned, but then um, if you want to call it like a, having that cultural sensitivity or awareness that each region or each area, each country, even within each country is going to have different circumstances, different environment. And because of that, you can't just have a one-size-fits-all policy or strategy. You need to help them have the resources to then build what's best for them there. But you're trying to give them those initial resources and then let them say, hey, you guys are going to take take it the rest of the way. But we want to give you that foundation that you can. Again, I think it's so interesting. It's that allowing these ideas to emerge to see which ones really have potential, which ones do not, but letting many of them get a chance and then seeing which ones survive and thrive. In, exactly right. Interestingly enough, even among the entrepreneurs, the ones who are able, best able to create the businesses that will thrive in that environment are people that are within that country. Mm -hmm. If someone comes from the outside, they won't have that, uh, the local knowledge needed to understand what's needed, what's a need that a, a new service, a new product, a new business can fit. Mm. Um, and we've seen that time and time again. So not only should the entrepreneurs be entirely homegrown, the policies, the context building, the innovation ecosystem, all of that also needs to be uh, guided by the people that are on the ground, mm -hmm. that know what's happening within the country. The worst thing that we can do is come in and bring Silicon Valley experts and try to commandeer the whole situation and dictate everything that needs to happen. Right. First of all, that deals that leads to a lot of resistance mm -hmm. because people realize you guys are coming in and coming from a very different context and trying to apply your mentality to something you don't know much about. And it just needs to have a proactive approach from the country itself mm -hmm. and from the entrepreneurs within the country. Yeah. And I think that sounds very exciting. And I think it's the only way things work. Even as a therapist, um, you know, we have to be aware of you can't just impose your values or beliefs on someone else because it has to make sense for them and fit with them and you don't know what their life is like, their culture, everything. And so you have to take that into account, even in trying to give someone the best psychotherapy that you can't just say, this is right, this is what you have to do, this is how it goes. You try to guide them to figure out their truth. So in some way, again, I'm going to find any way a <laughs> relation or connection back There's to therapy and psychology, but it's a similar approach of just being aware that you can't tell them exactly how to do it. You're going to help guide them to figure out what's best for them. And so it's very exciting, all these new potentially businesses and ideas will develop that maybe even around the world will get to benefit from them. But even bigger, and I want to touch on something you brought up in the first segment, because it's so important, this idea, you know, when you say something like ISIS and terrorism, and we're trying to make this connection to entrepreneurship and innovation, um, I think it's important to, to talk a bit more about that, because I, I want you to tell us a little bit more, and I, I have some thoughts on it too, about what you see. And I think probably one of the reasons why you're so passionate about this work is the positive impact it can have or the prevention of negative impact that it can have in that way. So can you talk a bit more about that side of things? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> in a way, it's actually both the upside and the downside is mm -hmm. pretty tremendous here. 
I used tremendous and I immediately thought of Trump. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was unintentional. Um, there's certain adjectives that are just out of my vocabulary now because I hear. <laughs> Anyhow, um, it is a huge opportunity for upside because we have all of these countries that we're focusing on, interestingly enough, the vast majority of them are highly dependent on oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Why is that interesting? With alternative energy becoming more efficient and more inexpensive, we know that fossil fuel dependence cannot be a sustainable source of economic prosperity for any of these countries mm -hmm. long-term. And long-term is not that far away, 10, 15, at most 20 years away. So what that means is these countries have to transform their economies to not be so dependent on oil and gas. And the more dependent on resources they are, the more we see that the other aspects of their economies that it create a dynamic environment in which new businesses, new ventures, a more diversified, vibrant economy can emerge are lacking because they've been able to rely on oil and gas as their crutch. They mm -hmm. can provide lots of public sector jobs. They can almost have no taxation at all. And so people are able to have a comfortable enough life. Most of the power and the wealth is in the hands of a few mm -hmm. that control the resource. But that's been able to be a sustainable source of, of economic viability up to now. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have a future. So there is a pressure to transform. How do you transform your economy? The most effective way is to harness your youth, mm -hmm. to create a transformation, an economy that transforms into something new, something that is um, built for the future, that is connected to technology, connected to innovation. The youth are the most powerful way to be able to do that. Yeah. What I think is interesting about what you just shared, and I, and I can imagine a, a point of resistance that you guys must face, and I'm sure you've considered and are, are, are going to try to um, address, is that those who do have the power, those who do have the money, are going to be reluctant to let it go. Even if the end appears to be near, even if you try to show them projections, I would imagine just because based on my own understanding of humans and how they interact and throughout history, we see that those who have the power, so in these countries, those very wealthy individuals who are controlling, let's say, the oil companies and sometimes the governments are controlling the oil in the country, they're going to be reluctant to give that up and say, okay, you're right, let's shift our economy in a new direction. Is that something that a challenge that you guys are facing or looking to address? You're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, people tend to be very uh, resistant to accept a truth that's going to mean their, um, their wealth or their power is going to be taken away from them. Mm -hmm. Even if, if the facts are hitting them right in the face, it's difficult to accept something like that. You'd prefer to be um, resisting that or ignoring the facts that indicate that that's the case. Right. So yeah, there definitely are points of resistance. Um, However, there are enough enlightened people that we find that see that, well, you know, maybe we can be a little bit more optimistic about where this is going, but oil and gas as a sustainable source of prosperity long-term is not possible. Mm -hmm. So that's still there. The other thing that's happening at the same time is even if you neglect the issue with fossil fuel dependence, there's a large population of young people in these countries. And we talk to them and say, what, you know, what is your biggest threat? What is the biggest security threat to you? And it's not the U.S., it's not China, it's not Russia, it's not their regional uh, adversaries. It's their own youth. Mm. If you have a huge population, and we saw this in the Arab Spring that took place in 2011, and you know, if you have young people that have nothing to live for, that are feeling disempowered, that even if they do all the right things and go to university and want to get a job and, and have a career, they're not able to do so. Mm -hmm if they feel completely shunned and dis disillusioned by their governments, 
that creates a major threat. So your power is immediately going to be at least questioned and potentially directly challenged if you don't address this problem. So simultaneously, you have this interesting confluence of factors. You have this need to transition and move away from oil and gas at the same time in these same countries, interestingly enough. You have these large youth populations that are being underutilized in the workforce. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you also mentioned, that I'd like to touch on this too quickly, is um, you know, being accepting of exploration and experimentation and trying and you need an educational system that actually produces minds that are able to do that, to Mm -hmm. think creatively Mm -hmm. and to think openly. Um, And unfortunately, the educational system in a lot of these countries is much more about rote memorization and sort of just following rules, reading to learning to read and write, Mm -hmm. but not to think openly, creatively, to challenge authority, to find, you know, challenges to the existing, the status quo that mindset is needed in today's world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, you know, even in the United States, we have that very strongly. Unfortunately, we're trying to move away from that uh, system of education where it's about rote memorization and uh, where we look at education as filling in the minds of children with information and knowledge rather than allowing them to thrive. Even the word educate or education, it comes from the root of it comes from to bring something which is already within to bring it out. Mm-hmm. So it's not about filling something in or, you know, giving them this knowledge about allowing them to express what's already there. Same with what I look at as parenting, not that you're supposed to um, force or make your children into a specific type of flower, but that they are a seed and your job is to give the water and the right uh, context and environment for them to grow into whatever flower they're going to become. So allow them to express who they are. And I think you're absolutely right that we're even behind in the United States. Some other countries are ahead of us in that realm mm-hmm. as far as making education that way where it allows people to learn to think rather than telling them what to think. Um, but I think that's important. It shows that how uh, extensive and expansive the work you guys want to do and need to do or needs to be done in these countries to see the kind of change you're talking about. It's not, again, a one-issue kind of a problem. It's going to take lots of things to tackle that. Exactly right. It's um, you mentioned it's it's not one issue, and in fact, all of these different factors they reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. And if if you and that's why we call it an ecosystem. If you have certain aspects of the ecosystem in place, but you have a legal and regulatory scheme that is not allowing for businesses to emerge because you don't have bankruptcy laws, business formation takes two years uh, to create a business, tax laws, other things make businesses impossible to create and thrive. Then all of the other efforts you've put in become at least ineffective and potentially completely futile. Mm -hmm. It doesn't lead to the outcomes you want. So you really need to think of it holistically and think about all the different aspects of the ecosystem. That's why it's not going to happen overnight. It's a process. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, rather than sending um, guns and tanks to address the problem of terrorism, addressing the root of the problem takes a more enlightened and long-term approach. We can't just sit here and, and feel secure because we're, we're, we're separating ourselves and ignoring the problems that are happening somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, without question, everything that's happening with terrorism is, is evil and sinister and destructive and horrifying. But the only way to address the root of the problem is to provide these young people, the youth, with at least the possibility that through effort and energy and hard work and through their intelligence, they can create something. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you need to provide an ecosystem that allows these things to thrive. It's missing right now. Yeah. So we, yeah, we giving them hope and not just false hope, but then actualizing that hope by giving them opportunities um, to do something good, to be productive, human nature, or even it's 
to me, almost a human need to be productive, to do something with yourself that you see some meaning in that has purpose, that has an effect. And without that, you become depressed, you become hopeless, you can even become suicidal, or you can become homicidal, or you know they call it getting radicalized and all these type of words we have for it. But without having that um, sense of purpose or a direction, people do unfortunately go in wrong directions when they don't have a purpose and a direction funneling them positively. And that's what I think is what's so exciting about the work you guys are doing again is that it's trying to change people's lives in the most fundamental way, giving them a purpose, giving them some type of meaning. Um, it's not just about having a job because you want to make money. It's about that deeper feeling of I'm contributing something to society. I'm using my gifts and talents and skills in a positive way, which leads to happiness. And the lack of that leads to unhappiness and depression. So I think it's very, very exciting. We've actually reached our next commercial break. Again, my guest, my brother, Parham Halakwi. We're talking about the exciting work he's doing with Global Innovation Catalyst advising governments in the Middle East and North Africa. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. My guest tonight, Parham Halakwi. Uh, we actually do have a caller, Parham. Do you mind if we take yeah, let's, a few, let's talk a few to people a ask some questions, but we want to bring one on the air. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yeah, yes, hi. Hi. Hello, doctors. Um, hi. I thought you forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we uh, did not. Uh, I, I know. I want to say hello to your brother. First time uh, talking to him. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank time. you. Same thing here. Talked to your dad a couple of times too about some of this stuff. Uh, you actually addressed some of the questions that I had during oh, the great. last 10 minutes. Uh, but I still have one more or two more questions. Sure. Um, one one thing I was kind of uh, thinking about. How, how do? Okay, we lost. You Sorry, you were breaking up a little bit. We lost you at how? Right at an important. Yeah, right moment. when you were asking me, the question. Let me let me walk outside. I was inside the car. <laughs> now, in 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 Home Depot right now. Okay. <laughs> let me go walk walk outside. Some so innovation economies uh, there too. Yeah. There are. Yes. Yeah, my question was mainly. Uh, all the ideas that you guys have is great, and it's, it's a very, very good uh, thing that you guys are doing. And uh, I was kind of thinking, We're still losing you. So sorry. Is it? Yeah, it's breaking. Yeah, it's breaking in and out. Can you hear me now? Yeah, if you want to try to, if you can make it quick and get it, because we don't want to lose it, maybe let us know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to move again if you okay. can hear me now. Yes, just, we're good uh, right now. Go ahead. Okay, great. Uh, that, that was my kind of a question that uh, the, the idea that you guys have, it, it's great, and uh, I, I do understand what you're trying to do. Uh, I was kind of thinking about how, how do you deal with the local government, uh, cities or states uh, or the cities that you go to and you try to implement what you're trying to do. Um, I know I, I've lived in other countries. I lived in India. I lived in Pakistan. And I, and I have seen the what you are talking about firsthand myself. Mm -hmm. uh, poverty has big big factor in mm -hmm. that. When people have no money, they will do just about anything, and that's how they basically get into trouble and stuff like that. Sure. That was my first question. Yeah, let's me. let's let Parham yeah. answer that one. Um, so, what can you say about that first question about dealing with the governments? Yeah. So, um, the governments, um, it's always 
there are, you mentioned this earlier too, there's points of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but in one way, the, the drop in the price of oil and gas that has taken minutes, that's obviously very volatile, but the general trend that seems to be uh, leading to that as a, as a source of concern economically, that's been kind of an impetus, a push where mm-hmm. uh, countries are starting to see that there's an urgency to dealing with, with the issues that they have. And so it's almost, you know, they're, um, while they would love to preserve the status quo, the status quo has rewarded them mightily um, economically and in, in terms of their political power. They are feeling um, that they must do something to address these bigger problems. Mm-hmm. And so they have shown some receptiveness. Uh, it still can be a challenge. And, and the countries that we tend to work with tend to be a little bit more enlightened. Um, and, and the people that we end up kind of first targeting that are our champions within the government tend to be um, have a more sort of future-oriented approach to things, which is good. Um, but there are challenges. There are always challenges. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not a, a, a solution that's easy and quick, you know. Sure, uh, it's, a, it's a very long-term strategy. It takes years to develop. We try to have a couple early quick wins, a couple early successes that show that this is possible and to show them how powerful and intelligent and capable their youth are. And they are everywhere. Everywhere we go, we see some brilliant, brilliant minds, hardworking people that want to make uh, a positive impact. Um, but the overall structure of building an innovation economy, uh, it's something that takes time mm-hmm. because you know, it involves so many different elements. What I think what you're talking about, as you're saying it, and I did touch on it even hearing you talk more, it reminds me that the people you're going to talk with almost by definition have power. And a lot of times are doing quite well, at least at the moment. So I think his question is a good one, that there is that resistance, especially when politicians very often, although I know it depends on like the political structure and system, can be very short-sighted because they're focusing on winning the next election and getting results yeah. now because they're going to judge them based on that for the next election. So telling them we have this plan that's going to take years to implement can sometimes, I'm sure sound bad to them or not sound very appealing to them. So it does take, I think his question is a good one because it's saying you guys must really have to present your argument and make it clear to them that it's also in their best interest to make this work. And that also if they don't make these changes, like you're saying, they might be in a lot of trouble. It's um, not only is it in their best interest, um, in our minds, it's, we try to be as neutral as possible. We have mm-hmm. no sort of um, horse in the race in any of these things. Even you know, one of the key things that our firm will do is bring in um, institutions, entities that help build an innovation ecosystem from Silicon Valley and from across the world. We don't have any, and, and uh, Mr. Elahian doesn't either have any financial stake in any of these firms. So we're completely neutral. Our objectives are clear. We want to yeah. create jobs and opportunity for the young people in this region. It's very clear. And, and so because of that, we're able to be kind of a neutral arbiter between, you know, in every one of these countries, there's different factions. They actually often work in silos. They may even have the goal of entrepreneurship in different aspects of the economy. Mm-hmm. But they're not speak these different sides or the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Mm -hmm. So we can, as sort of a neutral, objective person with positive intentions, come and be someone that can bring these different sides together and create a more unified vision. One of the first things we try to do sometimes is have a conference in which we create one common language, a unified vision across all of the Mm -hmm. key players in the economy. So Mm -hmm. it's the key ministers in government, the key influencers within uh, policymakers and even, you know, people on the private side as well. So we bring them all together, the most powerful people that can help build this innovation ecosystem, bring them together for a conference in which we bring academics, uh, entrepreneurs, key people from Stanford University, UC Berkeley, bring them all together and have them 
build a unified vision of what's needed. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, surprisingly, these ministers are talking to each other for the first time about wow. these issues. Mm. And so I think in some ways being an outsider can be a benefit mm-hmm. in that way. If one you know, branch of government or one minister goes to another, there's always some politics involved, and some antagonism, some conflict always, even if they're supposed to be working in unison. And so that can be helpful, um, just kind of painting the vision and creating a common language to understand what these things are. The other thing that's surprising is what entrepreneurship requires. Um, a lot of these terms, just in, in simple equity financing that's needed at the, at the sort of angel phase, at the VC phase, at the pre-seed or seed phase, these are things that we can help educate them on very quickly. They're not difficult concepts for these intelligent people to understand, but they don't, they don't know how these things work. They, and so creating an innovation ecosystem is challenging because they simply don't know a lot of these you know, key aspects of what it takes to make it happen. They're not challenging, but they need the education. And that's actually, I, 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 we talked before the show, you're saying that's another aspect of what you guys will be doing is creating almost like free education, explaining a lot of these things related to entrepreneurship and innovation. Is that right? Well, one, there, there's a couple key pillars, as you mentioned, and they all involve education in, in part. Uh, one is teaching, um, this is a term that uh, Kamran Elohian has created, is iTechpreneurship, which is entrepreneurship um, through broadband internet. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect. Another key aspect is investment in entrepreneurship. So in all of these countries, there are people that want to invest, um, but they don't know how to invest in entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. That's its own area, and they need to be educated about that, and we provide both the education needed and facilitate the resources that they need to be able to invest in entrepreneurship. And the third aspect, the third pillar, as we, as we call it, is, is social impact entrepreneurship. So you know, having these ideas and being able to cultivate entrepreneurship, it could be used for positive things or it could be used for negative things as well. Mm-hmm. There's people who are hackers. They're brilliant computer scientists and they use it to um, you know, hack computers or create a gambling site or do all kinds of things. And those things can make money. And what we advocate for is you can be successful and do positive things. Mm-hmm. Good guys can finish first. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Yeah. And it's especially in today's world. And so we try to sort of advocate for that as well. But education is, is, is important throughout that. Thankfully, teaching entrepreneurship doesn't require a four-year education. It can be taught relatively quickly. Me and uh, Mr. Lahian have a three-week course that we teach. Um, it's going to be starting again at the end of September. In this course, within a three-week span, we take our students through the entire life cycle of a startup, from the inspiration phase to the concept formation phase, the business formation phase, all of it. So they even, they form teams, they Mm -hmm. take an idea, they allocate shares within these teams as if they're actual founders, they go and talk to customers. So we take them through the entire cycle. And through these three weeks, they learn all aspects of what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And it has to be very experiential and action-oriented. They can't just sit in a classroom and listen to a lecture. Right. It needs to be, entrepreneurship is taught through something that must be experiential, active, and pro. And so the other way we are hoping to do this is to have courses online, because that way we can touch millions more. And so part of what the movement is going to try to do is provide the basic fundamental entrepreneurship education online, so anybody in any part of the world that has internet can get it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's wonderful. And that course you're teaching is in Barcelona, right? It is. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's go back to the caller. Caller, we just have about two minutes. I'm about to wrap up, but thank you for your call. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for you. All the good work both, both brothers and dad are doing. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Have a great night. Right. Take yes, care. Bye bye.
All right, we just have a few minutes left. Um, but as I was saying before, and I've said it a few times, I'm very proud of the work that you're doing uh, because I really think it can change the world in an incredibly powerful way and positive way, which I think is very exciting, uh, helping the lives of many individuals, many countries, societies, and even the whole world feeling safer. And to attack something like terrorism, which we talked about, it's going to take a lot more than just trying to kill the quote-unquote bad guys. It's a much more deeper approach. It's going to be necessary longer term and more uh, involving more factors than, than just that. So I think it's very uh, exciting what you are doing, and I know you're very passionate about it. Any final thoughts about it or things that you know, take home for people that you'd like them to know about the work or what it means to you? It's always challenging to sum up sure. uh, so much in, oh, yeah, in one minute, but I'll, you know, I think, um, and, and you touched upon this again, it's, um, we have this huge problem of terrorism, of extremism that seems to be pervasive. It seems to be growing and there doesn't seem to be a solution. Mm -hmm. You know, as we think about it, it just feels insurmountable. What can we possibly do with something so big and so massive and that seems to be getting worse? Um, what we've done so far through, like, if you look at the U.S. through its war on terror, um, it arguably has exacerbated the problem mm -hmm. um, in some ways by creating even more instability and war and conflict in many of these countries in the Middle East, and that leads to more people that are angered and um, and and can be targets for extremist groups, you know, potential candidates for becoming terrorists. And so, to me, it's um, it's interesting and novel to look at the problem in a different way. We can't just sort of isolate ourselves and attack and try to kill this problem and, and, and just bomb this problem. Mm -hmm. um, I think it needs to be looked at in a more enlightened way to get to really, okay, what is at the heart of this? And is there a more positive and proactive way to approach this that really gets to the root of the problem rather than just a symptom mm -hmm. of the problem? And I think right now we've been putting a lot of effort, energy, money into the symptoms. And I think, you know, with much, much less money, which much less... Um, in the way of resources, we can do so much more. You know, the price of one tank, of one plane, of one bomb, it's astronomical. We have the largest military budget in the United States, the largest military budget uh, by far in the world. It exceeds the next, I think it's right now, 10, 11 countries combined. It's the most powerful military in the history of the world. But to combat this problem, it's not enough. Mm -hmm. That's not, we, it, it still Well, it's not that it's not enough, it's that it's not the right strategy. I mean, you can't, you can't bomb your way to world peace, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really, and I think it kind of goes against some of the rhetoric that's out there, which is much more sort of, um, you know, isolationist um, and mm -hmm. the sense that through um, just bombing the problem to yeah. oblivion, we can actually address it. And um, I, to me, a more enlightened approach can be more effective. And mm -hmm. that's what, to me, is why I'm so passionate about doing this and putting every ounce of energy I have into making this happen. Well, I think that that's why I think it's so exciting. It's doing something uh, to really get at the root and figure out how we can try to fix this. You know, like I said, we can't bomb our way um, to world peace and have this idea that there's this good us and this bad them. And if we kill or get rid of the bad of them, we're finally going to feel safe and okay. When the truth of the matter is that we're all in us and we have to be able to work together and we have to give people the opportunity to work and do good things in order for good to happen. And and not only we're looking at the downside of it, what's amazing is there's an enormous upside. This large youth population can be harnessed to transform an economy and create a more uh, secure and prosperous mm -hmm. world.
And that's that's what we're hoping you guys will do with your exciting work. Again, my guest tonight has been Parham Halakwi, who is now working with Global Innovation Catalysts to help uh, advise countries in the Middle East and North Africa. Parham, thank you again for joining me tonight. It's been great. I hope I can hang out with you afterwards. I'll think about it. Right. Yes. No, we'll be hanging out together after right. this. But thanks to the callers and the listeners. And to also, Amir here in the studio. And again, a big thanks to my guest, Parham Halakwi. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Halakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.